Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler. We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us, a journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived. So join us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach. Between Woods and Lovecraft is recorded in front of a live studio audience. Hey everybody, how's it going? It's me, Tyler. This is where you clap and say hi. I told you you would know when to come in, Gage. Woo! Love this show. Terrible audience. Terrible audience. I don't get paid. <laughs> Neither I didn't does say a real paid studio live audience. audience. I said a real studio audience. I do love this show, though. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. Hey, Hannah. Hey, Tyler. How's it going? Pretty good. Even We're, though your studio audience failed. My studio audience failed me. <laughs> our studio audience is our- Drinking Coors Light and Mezcal at the same time. <laughs> highest paying patron, Gage Runkle, drinking a Coors Light on the couch next to us. Gage, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure to be here. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we just need to fly our other patron out. Yeah, and then she can be our live studio audience for that episode, and maybe, maybe she she'll do a good job. Time. She'll actually do better. Yeah. Than do. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, I feel like Devani can understand simple instructions like that. Well, <sighs> Hannah. Speaking of simple instructions, let's talk about our author for I had that's not a real I was gonna say had nothing to do. I had nothing. Let's talk you, about, you let's talk about robots. You followed the simple instruction I gave you, which was to read a novel. Yeah. So, I read a novel. Thank you very much. Yeah. Good job, Tyler. Woo! There you go. Thank you, Gage. Aspiring author finally read a novel. <laughs> hey. Yeah, it changed my whole life. It didn't. It wasn't Dune worthy, but it was good. It and I liked it too. You actually read the one that I didn't recommend. So Tyler texted me like a week ago. <sighs> yeah. He was like, Hannah, is this book going to make me cry? And I thought he was reading a different one. So I was like in my head, oh shit. Yeah, it's going to make you cry. But then it turned out he was reading the newest novel. Yeah. Are we going to do spoilers in this episode? I th- I want to. Um, I was planning to, you know, give a, a spoiler alert mm. Um, and then maybe put time codes in the episode description to be like, oh, hey. Oh, that's going to be hard. That's like clap. extra work, though. I'll write the episode description. We're hashing this out in real time. So, yeah. <laughs> so this I'm is how we work, alerts. but off camera. <laughs> it's all going to be toward the end. So when we do the biographical part, uh, you're safe. One of the books I'm just gonna is randomly more than shout. 15 years old. <laughs> I'm so going to randomly shout just spoilers the whole spoilers. time. <laughs> He's going to be like. Yeah, so he started high school and he was dead the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah so be ready for that one guys um yeah and in case it hasn't been made clear to you already by the uh title of this episode but the author that we're talking about today is kazuo ishiguro wow well done thank you i'm gonna just say it right now i will never say his name in this episode okay the, i am not entirely confident on it and part of the problem is Everything I've listened to where they pronounce his name is in a British accent. Uh-huh. So I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing so it right. So say it with a British admit, accent. I, I can't British Come accent. on, just run it up. Just Kazuo Ishiguro. <laughs> that was like, that was that was pretty good. I was hoping for like a mate or a governor. Governor. <laughs> well, he's not a governor. You want a spot of tea. What's his name? Kazuo. Kazuo? Kazuo? Kazuo. Kazuo? All right. I got it. Kazuo. You want a spot of tea, Kazuo? <laughs> what? Was- 
Much better. Huh? Possibly offensive to British people, but I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But he is a Nobel Prize winning author of short stories and novels, including Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go, which were both adapted into films. Uh, He's also a screenwriter and a musician. And the fact that he's a Nobel Prize winner initially uh, made me think that he was going to be, you know, very stuffy and serious. Mm. Um, But through the the research I did, he seems like a super chill guy. Yeah. Um, And since he's still alive... I couldn't find an official biography about him, Mm. so this is a little bit different in that most of this is compiled from his Nobel Prize write-up and um, various interviews on TV and in magazines and stuff that he's given. Yeah, I think it's going to be, it's a little bit different of an episode that we normally do. Normally we dive deep into their lives and kind of how they how they live their life and and certain points that they wrote certain stories to see all that. Um, We've deviated from this a couple times before, like the episode where we covered uh, The Witcher and the Polish writer of The Witcher, whose name I also will never say. Andre something something Orofsky. That's it. That's all I got. Ending with Oski was a very safe bet. Yeah. Uh, I th- I think we did this with um, Neil Gaiman still we di- alive. We did it. With, well, he had a we, we dived pretty deep into Neil Gaiman. Uh, Mary Carr. We did Mary Carr, and and it was a little bit more about her books and and that. Uh, and then also, you know, some of the fun ones that we did, like uh, um, the uh, love languages and and things. Yes. So, uh, it's it's while I try to keep us away from doing a book review show, um, I think this episode will be a little bit more book review e. Just because you've read a few things and I read so, and all I know about this guy is the one book that I have read. That's it. That's all I got. Guys. Well, you are in for a wild ride. <laughs> Does he have a crazy life? He's got an he has an unexpected life. Like there were a lot of things That's a really cool name for a book. An unexpected life. It's basically an unexpected journey or whatever sounds the like, hobbit it is. It sounds almost like a Hallmark movie. Ooh. An unexpected life in this Hallmark movie. <laughs> I got another. I was about to follow Announced it up with a whole NPR synopsis. voice for some reason. No, it's my Hallmark guy. That's like, he's like happy, you know, and there's like Christmas music. An unexpected life. Santa Claus comes down from the North Pole and marries a witch. <laughs> <laughs> They're starting to broaden a little bit. You're going to give that one TikTok guy a run for his money. If you've never seen him, he does like um, Hallmark movie pitches and they're hysterical. Yeah, that's, that a, pretty, a, that's a pretty common thing. And, and, I, and I'm there for it. I'm all about that. <laughs> yeah. I was going to get into Does he a have total... a Hallmark life? Is he Santa Claus? No, <laughs> no he's oh, not okay. Santa Claus. Okay, well, as long as we can rule that out. Yes, we can rule that out. <laughs> okay, sit back. Relax. All right. And uh, we're going to start this shit. Here we go. <laughs> so Kazuo Ishiguro was born November 8th, 1954 in Nagasaki, Japan. Um, and he grew up in a very, like, traditional Japanese house and home. Um, it, you know, had all the, the characteristics of a Japanese home. It had the tatami mats, the sliding screens, family samurai swords, um, banners, and other heirlooms that had passed down. It was also a three-generational house. So his grandpa lived with them and was the head of the family. Um, and then his parents, obviously, and I think he had three um, sisters. His grandfather had actually spent a long time away from Japan, living in Shanghai, establishing Toyota, which was then a textile machinery company. I'm sorry, establishing? Like he founded it? Like working with it there when it was just starting up and not making cars, apparently, which oh, okay. is a thing that Toyota once did. 
Um, so Ishiguro's father had been born in Shanghai. His mother and all of the other members of her immediate family were actually living in Nagasaki when the atom bomb was dropped in 1945. Oh, damn. So they survived that. Really? His mom was actually wow. the only member of the family to get hurt in it. She got hit by some, like, flying debris. Wow. Yeah. All right. So, how would you like that to be a story though? It's like, oh yeah, I survived an I atomic survived blast. That. I got a little hurt. And like, oh, from the radiation? No. Nah. There's a lawn chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently, like it damaged their house, but they didn't even notice until the next time it rained what? and like water started leaking through the roof. <laughs> Damn nuclear bombs <laughs> putting leaks in a roof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all things considered, I'd say they had it pretty well. Yeah, pretty good. That's, a, that's awesome. Good for them. Way to survive. So he lived there for the first five years of his life um, and went to kindergarten there. He learned, uh, I have no idea how to say this, but it's the first and simplest of the three Japanese alphabets. So that is the extent of his Japanese knowledge. Oh. Because then uh, at age five, he left the country with his parents and older sister. My bad. He only has one sister, not three. I don't know where I got three from. I... You don't Well, either. you said three <laughs> forms of alphabet or something, so yes, maybe, maybe you're the thinking three forms. They, they had a daughter for each form of alphabet. That's what I would do. Yeah. But <laughs> I live in America, and we have one <laughs> alphabet. So one kid. There it is. One kid. So they left Japan um, because his dad got a job as an oceanographer um, with the British government. He was working at the National Institute of Oceanography. Um, they moved to Guildford, Surrey, which is about 30 miles south of London, and they only planned to stay in England for two years tops, but the British government kept funding his dad's research more and more, and even though his parents like frequently considered going back to Japan, they never did. In fact, he would never even go back to Japan until his 30s. So hmm. he grew up in Britain um, and and doesn't speak any Japanese to this day. His dad ended up inventing a storm surge machine, actually, which measures tides. That was his his big work there, um, which was very mysterious to Ishiguro growing up. Like, he didn't really know what his dad did for a living. He just went off to their little office in the woods and didn't talk about it. You know, I feel like I, I feel like that I know what that's like. I know what that's like, but that's because I don't understand, like, electricity and stuff, which is what- Is your dad an electrician? No, he works for the power company, though. Oh, okay. Like, planning how to get electricity to places. Gotcha. See, my dad, I asked him a few times when I was a kid, like, what do you do? And he's like, well, when other people want to buy a house, I help them. I was like, okay, so a real estate agent. No, there's the people that give them money. I was like, so you work for the bank? No. So, like, there's people that talk to the bank for the people. Like, so a real estate, like, broker? Yeah, but it's different than that. And I'm like, what? <laughs> how how many fucking layers are there in this job? All I heard from that is that your dad's job doesn't need to exist. Well, apparently it did. Uh, enough to where he could feed us. But, like, I understand, like... Constantly, my dad would tell me things of like, oh, this is what I do. And I'm like, I don't care because I have zero idea what you're talking about. I don't I don't know. <laughs> like, I asked all the questions I knew how to ask and I'm done now. We can talk about the, you know, intangibility of, you know, the trinity of post-millennial Jesus Christ. But don't try to explain to me your job. <laughs> <laughs> that is just way over your head. So, um... So he, he grows up attending the local school where he is the only non-English student. Um, his parents were also not Christian, 
But for some reason, he starts going to Sunday school with his friends and stuff and eventually became a choir boy at the local church. Now, this is not some big religious moment for him. To this day, he is not religious. So hmm. I, my strong suspicion is that he was kind of just doing it because everybody else was yeah, doing it. Yeah, because it was a place to be- belong. Yeah. Church does that. So his parents tried to keep him connected to his heritage. Um, and... His grandpa and other family members would send him, like, regular care packages with the latest Japanese comics and other, like, reading materials, which he really liked. But those kind of stopped after his grandpa died. And so he kind of, like, lost some connection with Japan. Um, And then at 11, he he starts, like, grammar school, as it's called in England. So, like, middle school, basically. Um, Primary school. Yeah. I think that's... Elementary school. I couldn't. There. I couldn't care Primary less. School? I could not care less what they call it in England. Oh, I was making a joke. We are offending British <laughs> it's listeners. So left aggressive. Left. We are right never going to be why. able to go to England on tour. Tyler. That's fine. We're going to New Zealand. I don't care about. I do care about England, but I care more about New Zealand. New Zealand, back us up. I want to go to Mount Doom. That would be cool. Podcast from Mount Doom. I will hate on UK until New Zealand comes through on this. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in school, he remembers writing stories as part of the curriculum. It wasn't like this was something that he was doing out outside of school like some of our other authors. It was mostly like the easy class to take kind of. And it was fun making up these stories with his friends. And they spent a lot of time like designing the covers in particular, mm. getting really into the art. Um, but I mean, the overall impact on him was that he found he was never intimidated by the prospect of having to make up a story. Mm. It was always something that he associated with being kind of fun and easy. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that stands out from his childhood as, and shows up again in adulthood is that he was very musically inclined. He got piano uh, lessons from the age of five onward. And then as a teenager, he became even more interested in music like from listening to it, like most teenagers. Um, He really liked traditional folk songs from America, Scotland, and Ireland, and his personal heroes were Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, and Joni Mitchell. So, yeah, not uh, who I would picture him listening to, just looking at this very serious-looking Nobel Prize winner. I mean, it makes sense to me. Those are some pretty serious folk artists. Yeah. Like, like Leonard Cohen is pretty... uh, Leonard Cohen? He's pretty down. Like, he's pretty low. Like... Like chill and serious, somber. somber, somber. That's the word I was looking That's for. He's pretty looking. somber with his writing and shit. Yeah. Um. So Mr. Ishiguro starts teaching himself guitar beginning at age fourteen, and then about a year later, he starts writing his own songs. Um. And he and his friends would write and perform their their music at small local venues. Um. And they also had like, so when we were talking about Tolkien and the Inklings. They have like the musical version of that where they would get together and critique and flat out argue over their songs. Um, according to his uh, biography on the Nobel Prize website, they characterized it as, quote, often savagely Ooh. criticizing each other's music. So I'm just picturing Inklings, but with like Bob Dylan. Yeah. But like going down on like, yes. hey, man, I wrote a really good song. No, you didn't, bruv. That's bullshit. <laughs> Ooh, hey, la, la, la. Who wants to hear that? Yeah. Get over. What do you think? You're the Beatles from your, because you're from the England area? Dumbass. I like that you called it the England area. (laughs) (laughs) We are going to start another revolution. (laughs) They're going to be like these Americans. They've gotten out of hand. Have you, have you listened to the Between Lewis and Lovecraft podcast? We let them have way too much freedom. (laughs) 
They are coming at it hard. <laughs> Way too hard. They are criticizing us. And Give those people a king. That's what they need. <laughs> <laughs> too soon. What? Oh, yeah, I forgot about it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so um, he graduated high school, and um, his first job after graduating high school actually was on the Scottish moorland working as a grouse beater at Balmoral Castle, which was the royal family's like country uh, retreat. So basically what that means is he helped royal guests shoot game birds. And yeah, he actually, man. he met the queen a lot. Wait, grouse beaters. So like they'd shoot it down and then he'd go beat it to death so it'd actually die? <laughs> no, I think they were more in charge of like releasing the birds. Oh, okay. Because he said that like, so. Is this one of those things where they have different terminology for letting things loose? Go beat those grouse up. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> or like he's in charge of wrangling them. So why not wrangle? I don't know. They call it a beater. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not British. (laughs) I feel like grouse wrangler would be like the Australian term for it. Oh, or or just the West West, you know, wild wild Western. Yeah, Um, grouse wrangler. So after hanging out with the royals for a summer, he took on the glamorous job of packing baby food products in a storeroom. He went from meeting the queen to packing baby food. Yep. All right, you're sliding backward, but yeah, I guess his dad being an oceanographer didn't make a lot of money because these all seem like very um, middle slash lower yeah class like necessity jobs. <laughs> jobs like you just need a, pay- a paycheck yeah so but he saved up his money and I guess he was taking like the year between high school and college off um, and in the spring classic yeah right finding himself I'm an artist. He, he was. So in the spring of 1974, he took off to America for three months and backpacked to the United States and Canada. Nice. Uh, he hitchhiked up the Pacific Coast Highway from Los Angeles to Northern California. Nice. And at this point, he's a total hippie in looks. He has long hair, a mustache. He's carrying around a guitar and a rucksack with him. Mm-hmm. Like, he acknowledges at, himself. At what year? Is this like the 80s? 74. 74. Yeah. So he was like an OG hippie. And he, looking back yeah. on it, he's like... We all thought we were super unique, but we all looked exactly the same. Oh, so he's a hipster. Yes. Got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So he did the hitchhiking thing. And then at one point, he traveled by freight train from Washington State across Idaho to Montana, which I guess was a super different experience back then. Like hitchhiking was for the middle class, like educated kids who are basically what? like taking a fun year abroad or something. But the freight train experience was like he was hanging out with quote unquote hobos yeah said. hobos yeah that's a 90s thing i was a kid and we were worried about hobos we yeah. weren't worried about like i mean like we were worried about pedophiles i wasn't worried about <laughs> pedophiles but i was worried about hobos i was never worried about hobos for the record so in in town like there's so we have a railroad track that, that literally cuts our hometown in half and then there's a, a walking path that goes perpendicular to that and it like cuts across and actually goes over the railroad and the main highway that that's next to the railroad and i as a child lived right next to that walking path and at that time like nowadays it's all pretty and they've paved it and it looks nice and you know they want people to go walk on there back in my day back when i was a child they would like it was like you don't go on the logging road it is like it goes through forests. It, go, it connects, you know, like Portland to Malala and the rivers. And, like, it's where the sketchy people lived. Well, naturally, it's where I would go ride my bike. And the thing that we'd always have to keep an eye out for, me and my brothers and friends, we'd always be on the lookout for hobos. Because it's right next to the railroad. And it, like, 
and we'd go like there was bike jumps and stuff and one time there was like there was a like a a train cart that just kind of stopped there and we all like poked our heads in because we're like oh is there a hobo in there and there was there's a hobo (laughs) and we ran for our lives <laughs> wow. We yeah. lived like 10 miles apart this whole time and I had a very different childhood yeah. than you. I was I was a I was a small town city boy. I was a country girl, <laughs> not worried about hobos <laughs> at all apparently. <laughs> but yeah, so um in one of the interviews that he gave, he was talking about them. He said they lived by donating blood. They were alcoholics. They were poor and sick Jeez. and they looked awful. There was nothing romantic about them at all, but they gave us a lot of good advice. They told us don't try to jump the train when it's moving because you'll die. And if anyone tries to get on your box car, just throw them off. Damn. They'll want to steal something. Yeah. All right. I'm like, okay, solid advice. Yeah. But yeah, definitely a very different experience um than my time traveling abroad did you travel freight car stuff no i did not oh okay i did hitchhike once but did you really yeah in scotland um all right i just talked about my adventures of the hobo i mean it's time for hannah's adventures hitchhiking it was nothing exciting happened like hitchhiking in scotland super safe based on my experience yeah it was pouring down rain uh i was on the side of the road and a nice pharmacist picked me up and drove me back to the city and, and, then then and then a hobo jumped out. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean I would. Pro- I've never hitchhiked in the United States. Maybe I would not recommend that. Super these days. illegal. Don't go hitchhiking. I don't think hitchhiking is illegal. It's illegal. It is absolutely illegal. Hitchhike I only know this to. because of the show Lost. Oh really? Yeah. Because Locke, he's he ends up picking up a hitchhiker, and then the police officer pulls him over, and the hitchhiker's like, "Oh, Locke is my uncle," and and Locke is all like. Yep, he's my uncle. And then Locke takes him to his commune where there's a bunch of cultists and stuff. And then the kid turns out to be a cop who went undercover to suss out the cult. Wow. And Locke destroyed his entire life because he wanted to help this hitchhiker. But it was illegal for him to do it in the first place. Hitchhiking should not be illegal, but moving on. They're <laughs> <laughs> so off base right now. So during all of these travels, he was keeping a daily diary. Um, and when he got back to England, he gave fiction a try for the first time in his like adult life. Mm. Um, he wrote two short stories inspired by his travels. And looking back, <clears throat> he says they were no good, basically because he'd adopted this um, strange transatlantic twang of prose. And because he wasn't American, it sounded super fake and phony. Well, isn't transatlantic supposed to be kind of like a mixture of of, of, British of American and- Yankeeism and British? I think he meant that he was trying to sound like Americans. Yeah. Because when he was over there, he, he, he saw himself as sounding like super educated and worldly because he started calling motorways freeways and stuff. Oh, of he course. He was like picking up American slang or, yeah. well, just whatever we call things. They called them cell phones not mobiles this is the 70s so they called them landlines they called them elevators <laughs> and not lifts, lifts. <laughs> yes there we go that's that's, that's a relevant one so um in the fall of 1974 he starts university at the university of kent in kent at canterbury to study english literature and philosophy so he wrote one, two bad short stories bad short and decided stories. i'm gonna do this for the rest of my life I don't know that he decided that. Maybe he was like more into the reading aspect hmm. of English literature. Okay. Um, but when he was there, he was introduced to the works of Proust and Kafka, two writers who went on to have a really strong influence on his work. If I don't know if you've ever read Kafka's The Metamorphosis, super fucking weird. Is it what? Is it an episode we need to do someday? We should probably do Kafka at some point. But yeah, yeah. I'm down. The Metamorphosis is. Uh, 
Short story? Yeah, it's definitely a short story. I can definitely read that. Read that one. It's bizarre. <laughs> um, and then in April 1976, he takes another um, break from school, this time six months, and he goes up to Renfrew, Scotland, to work as basically a social worker in a really poor area. He's working with, like, struggling families and the local trade unions, <clears throat> and this gets him interested kind of in political issues. What, what dictated this, though? Like, where did this... It seems so weird, you know, with like uh, um, Miyazaki, like there was a lot of reason to why he did a lot of stuff, right? Like <clears throat> he was good at animation, but then at the same time, he was very much politically minded from even just being when he was a child, like he was very interested in all the shit that was going on around him. And so it, it really confirms why he did stuff. And when he entered the field of animation, we know why he entered animation because he was good at animation and because he was um, driven to tell stories and, and all these, cho- all of his choices made sense. Right. And that's just the last episode that we did. That's the fresh off the top of my head. All these other people though, there's usually really good reasons so far. It just sounds like very random things that he's doing. Like, yeah, I grew up, uh, I was, I, I'm going to go to America, uh, run around, be a hippie, do nothing at all. Um, and then I'm going to go home, go to school for a little bit. And like, I like books, I guess. So I guess I'll go into literature, uh, and I'm going to just stop. I'm just going to go help people. Like even him going to church was just random. Like, why is he doing what? I suspect like the going to church and the going to America thing had a lot to do with like what other people, like what his peers were doing at mm. the time. Cause you know, it's not that uncommon to go travel after you graduate high school. If sure. you're lucky enough to take a All year of us off. Americans go to to Europe yeah, and all the Europe. Europeans come to America. <laughs> come over here, yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> I am I suspect that during his time abroad, like when he was hanging out with the hobos on the freight trains, he probably got a little more, like, socially minded. Hmm. He seems to be someone who's drawn to people who are different from him or, like, um, less, I guess, esteemed societally. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's something that's, like, grown over time. But I think that probably started out with his trip to America and meeting so many different kinds of people. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm not sure why exactly he wanted to help the poor so much. What got him into that? Or if it was, like, something that looked good on a resume. It very much could be. <laughs> it, could it could just be. be he's like, look, I know what I got to do to get to fill out my resume. Yeah. So while he's in Scotland working with kind of the, the more um, impoverished people, he starts working on his first which would end up being unpublished novel. Um, He returns to university in the fall and graduates in 1978. And by that time, he'd gotten really into kind of the classic literature. He became a fan of Charlotte Bronte, uh, Jane Austen, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Chekhov, and Plato. Um, All authors that would have like kind of a big influence on his style. All authors that we should, if not already have, episodes on. Yeah, I think uh, Jane Austen's the only one in there. I think so. Yeah. We'll get to the others eventually. A lot of Russians in there. Yeah. What the heck? (laughs) What the heck? So around this time, he's still writing on the side and also performing music at local folk folk clubs um, and starts his second, which would also be unpublished novel in 1977. So kind of just writing on the side for fun. At this point, he hasn't had anything published. Hmm. Uh, Probably for good reason. If, If the novels are anything like his first two short stories. Sure. Um, After graduating, he goes to work in London, again with a charity that is centered around homelessness. And while there, he meets his future wife, Lorna McDougall, who uh, was also working for the charity. Lorna McDougall? McDougall, Scottish. 
legitimately one of my favorite names I've ever heard in my entire you life. Think? I'm not gonna. I'm not lying at all. Lorna McDeagle. <laughs> yes, when you say it like that, it's so cool. <laughs> you know what? I'm naming a character Laura, Lorna, Lorna McDougal. McDougal. It's happening. <laughs> she would probably like that. <laughs> Huge honor. I can't wait to. I can't wait to throw her in a story. <laughs> Lorna McDeagle. <laughs> it's so You're fun just to be say. saying that the whole time because you yeah. can actually pronounce it. Yeah, Lorna McDougal's husband. <laughs> <laughs> That's like very feminist, but also yeah, feminine, fem forward, man. I'm for it. I'm all for it. She's not Kazuo Ishiguro's wife. No, he's Lorna McDougal's husband. Yeah, we, we just didn't. That's what we're naming this episode now. Lorna McDougal's husband. Lorna McDougal's husband. Yeah, we just did an episode on Lorna McDougal's husband. Who's that? Some writer's wife. <laughs> That's our next podcast is just like um, spouses of authors. We do their life yeah. story. We're going to start doing that in between all of our episodes because we'll already have done the episode and we can just like do an extra 30 minutes on their spouse. We could do like two full length episodes on all of Hemingway's ex-wives. Yeah, man. It'd be a two parter. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. We just assigned ourselves so much extra work. It'll be a part of our Patreon. Yeah. If you want, if you want to hear about spouses of writers, join our Patreon. <laughs> if we get five more patrons at the five dollar mark, we'll start doing we'll start doing some more stuff on there. And bring Lorna McDougal on to. Oh, we're gonna talk about Lorna McDougal, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> Back yeah. to business, Tyler. Yes. <laughs> so. <laughs> So after he's working at this charity, meeting his future uh, wife and all that, he applies for a creative writing master's program at the University of East Anglia, which at the time was the only university in the country that offered a degree like this. Mm, um, yeah, East Anglia. Yeah, yeah super prestigious. So, cool. <laughs> so the the course was actually run by a pretty prestigious novelist and um, professor named Malcolm Bradbury. Oh, I thought you were going to bring in like J.R.R. Tolkien or something. That yes, would have been sick. We totally missed a that. A little guy though. named uh, Tolkien? <laughs> Sorry. So continue. Ishiguro was accepted and joined a class of six people, which oh, was damn. the largest since the program had oh, started. Damn. Yeah. So he was actually really nervous after he found out he was accepted. He didn't think he was going to be good enough. Uh, he mm. thought that these were all going to be like very serious writers and that uh, it was going to be humiliating having them scrutinize his work. Yeah. Uh, someone, this story blew my mind. Somebody told him about a cottage for rent in the countryside that had previously been used as a rehab for drug addicts. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you know what? I should rent that place for a month and go out there and learn how to write. Oh, so what? he went out to the drug addict cabin and uh, taught himself how to write before going to the program. He just taught himself. He's yeah. just like, you know what? I might want to take this thing seriously. Yeah. Let's just go out and give I it a... I got into the master's Let me just course. give it 30 days and I'm good, right? So, Fuck that. I don't like this guy anymore. I do not like this he, movie at all. Do you think he had it too easy? Yes. This bullshit. He hasn't had anything published yet. And at this point, I he's like care. 25. I don't care. I've been doing this for a year and a half now so that I could learn how to be a better writer. And I'm not. I'm sorry. <laughs> he got into the master's course. Not okay. 
So when he started it, he got super into writing about, about Japan, even though, again, at this point, he still hasn't even been back to the country since he was five years old. Mm. Um, so one of the first stories he shared with the class was set in Nagasaki after the bombing. Um, and his classmates all loved it. They were like, you have a lot of talent and you're on to something here with the Japan stuff. Yeah. So, good job at going and learning how to do this for a month. Yeah. So he keeps writing the Japan stuff. Um, the Japan stuff. Yeah. That's what he called it. <laughs> so uh, he starts uh, around the same time actually publishing short stories in a small literary magazine. Um, three of them ended up being accepted by Faber and Faber, which I think was a little more prestigious because it had previously been run by T.S. Eliot, who, if you took Brit Lit at all in high school, is like a pretty famous He's poet. like a guy. He's a guy. He's a guy that Lewis hated. That douchebag. He he didn't like <laughs> Eliot at all. Really? Yeah, we ta- we covered this. For writing reasons or personal yeah. reasons? Uh, I don't know if it was personal. Definitely for writing. For he writing. thought he was overrated. We'll cover it in our T.S. Eliot episode. <laughs> <laughs> so the stories that he wrote uh, for Faber and Faber were going to be included in an anthology that was slated for publication in 1981. But in the meantime, he was introduced to their fiction editor, Robert McCrum, who gave him an advance That's for... such a good name. Again. So many good names gonna... <laughs> in this episode. Hannah McCrum? It sounds like McCrum. something from fucking Harry Potter. Well, Professor McCrum. Oh my God, that's a Harry England. <laughs> so McCrum gives him an advance for the novel he was writing at the time, which was kind of a continuation of his short stories about Japan. Okay. And then. So, like, he's he's got a bunch of short stories. Are they all one big story? No, or? it's more like the same theme. So, um, <clears throat> it kind of follows, I guess, the original short story he did. So, A Pale View of Hills is the title of the novel. Um, and it. It also takes place after the bombing of Nagasaki. So Okay, so it's its own story. It has nothing to do with the short stories. It's kind of just like a thematic continuation a, a of that. A spiritual successor yes. sequel. Yeah, yeah success, spiritual successor. I like yeah, that. Yeah, there we go. Um, and that gets published in 1982 to near unanimous praise. Uh, yeah, you're going to hate this guy. Sorry. It won an award from the Royal Society yeah, of Literature. Yeah, I spent like 30 days figuring out how to write. This is great. It's the I'm, hardest thing I've ever done, guys. But at this point, he is... <laughs> Uh, actually, yeah, fuck him. He's only like 28 it's now. It's not fair. <laughs> I was going to say, he's like 30. And then I'm like, well, shit, I'm almost 30. You are 30. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me, Hannah. Sorry. Wow. Um, so, yeah, A Pale View of Hills does very well. It gets published in several other languages. And it leads to him being included as the youngest member of um, the first like 20 best young British novelists list in 1983. He's alongside writers like Salman Rushdie, Martin Amos, and Ian McEwan, who wrote Atonement, uh, which is a book that I read. I didn't read anything by the other two, but I know they're well-known, along with several other writers who weren't well-known at the time but would become incredibly famous later on. So first novel comes out, and everybody's like, we should watch this guy. Are, Are you... You're wiping your glasses. Yeah. Are you cleaning the tears off them? Yeah, I'm not happy about this. <laughs> I'm not. I was expecting you to be like, yeah, it was like he went through the class and it was like grueling and difficult and he had to learn, relearn how to write because those 30 days were shit. No. He no. did really well. He he went, shot up fake heroin for a month <laughs> and he learned how to he write. He shot better. up like artistic heroin. Artistic heroin. It's bullshit. You know what it's like? <laughs> you know what it's like? It's fucking Griffin McElroy. But before Griffin McElroy, that's what it's like. Who's Griffin McElroy? He's uh he's one of the brothers and my brother, my brother and me. He's the DM for the Adventure Zone. He also has like three other podcasts. He's like he's blowing up. He was uh, one of the thirty under thirty 
uh, people okay. for a while. Uh, Luminary visionaries. He start helped start Polygon, and then he left it because he didn't need to be a part of it anymore because he's so fucking famous and rich and talented. You know what he did? You know what he did? You know what he fucking did? Graduated college, just started playing around, just started having fun. And then everyone's like, oh, look, this guy. Everybody loves this guy. Let's just <laughs> give him all of her money, attention, and love. It's great. Tyler's having an emotional breakdown right now. I Earlier I said he didn't <laughs> affect me the way that, like, Dune did, but that, that's not fucking true anymore. Frank Herbert struggled a lot more. Yeah. I will say He that. earned it. Whoa. <laughs> so if you have any sort of natural talent that manifests at an early age, Tyler hates you. It's not that. It's not that you can't have talent that manifests at an early age. It's that I don't like the fact that you did 30 days of work <laughs> and then you're just riding those coattails. <laughs> Gage, I, Gage I is snorting back. laughing at me. Okay, are you ready? <sighs> McDougal's husband. McDougal's husband. <laughs> She's better than he is. So okay. by the this point in his uh his early writing career, mm-hmm. he had completed the creative writing master's degree and returned to work with homeless people in West London for some. Oh, of course he did. He's just such yeah, a good guy. Actually, why do you hate him so much when he's helping the homeless all the time? He's Tyler? doing it so that it, he sells more books. <laughs> He's doing it sell books, guaranteed. He was like an influencer on Instagram in the yeah. early 80s. Oh, where, look, I'm, I'm, I'm helping homeless, homeless people. people. Oh, so selfie. Selfie. Um, I'm giving this guy shit. I'm not, I don't, I'm not. He's like, he seems like he the seems nicest guy. He seems like a really guy. nice guy to me, completely honest. Listening to the interviews with him, I'm like, oh my gosh. He's Here's got- what I want. Here's what I want. I want to start a feud with this guy <laughs> just to get him on the show. That's what I want to. He can be on correspondence if he wants to You're clear things to up. Start a feud with like an almost seventy-year-old man. An almost seventy-year-old Nobel winner. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler Klotz is going out to you. I've got your. I've got your ticket, bud. I'm sure he's really concerned. <laughs> he's probably so. He's nice. probably the nicest guy in the world, but he's gonna have to come on the show and prove it. <laughs> I would love that. I would, because he's got like the calmest voice, and his like British accent is so soothing. I'm like, he should start a podcast, and I would just listen to him talk about whatever, mostly writing. Yeah, we can host his <laughs> podcast for him if that makes you feel better. Hey. Look, McDougal's husband, come on down to Oregon. You've been here before, apparently. I think he skipped us. No. No, he didn't. I don't know. This will be the nail in the coffin here, Hannah. The the things that were highlighted were California and and Washington. Washington. Did he just just fly right over us? I assume he had to get through Oregon somehow. Did he just swim (laughs) in the Pacific Ocean just to avoid us? Of course he would, because he's so much better than us. He's going to go help the homeless people in Washington and write a book in 30 days. It's going to be the bestseller. He didn't write a book in 30 days. He just went to a <laughs> he cottage just and practiced learned writing. learned <laughs> how to write a book, air quotes. I think someone needs a 30-day retreat in a cottage, modern Tyler. modern-day fucking Jesus of literature, apparently. <laughs> going around Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> he just floated over it. <laughs> I got nothing. He this seems whole, like such a nice this guy. This whole episode is going to trigger Tyler to no end. So he goes back to work with the homeless in okay. West London. Yep. But then he's getting successful. So he says, fuck you, homeless people. I'm going to quit and become a full-time writer. Yeah. Selling some books. Yep. Uh, he writes two screenplays for TV. Uh, one of them won an award. 
at the Chicago Film Festival. <laughs> hold your hand out at me. <laughs> I fucking hold your hand out like, wait, there's more. No, I'm just trying to go, like, I'm saying he won an award. Don't freak out. Um, meanwhile, he's working on his second novel, An Artist of the Floating World, which gets published in 1986. That one's shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Um, and one wins the Whitbread Book of the Year. What kind of literature is this? Like, what what kind like, of genre th- they're is this? Not, okay, we're gonna get to that later. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so the the first one is like kind of like historical fiction. I would say I'm not really sure what an artist of the floating world is. Um, uh, but his next one is kind of like I would characterize his style in general as literary fiction, which he does not like self-identify as. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. He's not super into genres. Um, of course so, he's not. Of course he doesn't like Tyler's going to like lose his shit over here. Fucking hipster. Uh, just calm down. He marries Lorna in 1986 as well. Thank you. Your favorite person Finally, in the whole world. <laughs> Lorna gets a little bit of... of uh, a credit? A, or, thank you. Like, I, I'm so worked up I can't think of the word. <laughs> Lorna, Lorna married, married him. He's lucky enough that Lorna marries him. Yes. Lorna McDougal, my hero. You're here. Um, in 1989, his third novel, The Remains of the Day, comes out, um, and that won the Booker Prize that year. This is a pretty widely acclaimed no- novel, and it became an international bestseller. Uh, the film adaptation stars Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson, so pretty big names there. Yeah. That came out in uh, 1992 and was nominated for eight Oscars. Damn. Um, also in 1992, his daughter Naomi was born. Mm. Lorna and Naomi. I think he only had one kid. I like I like Naomi. That's a good name. That is a good name. Um, his next novel, The Unconsoled, wasn't released until 1995. So there's like a six-year <laughs> yeah, gap between novels one. here. This one came out to mixed reviews. Um, it's a 500-plus page stream-of-consciousness-style story about a pianist who's anxious before an important performance. And it was kind of, like, inspired by a conversation that he was having with Lorna uh-huh. about, like, the meaning of dreams. So I think it's supposed to be, like a, like, a meditation on our own internalized anxieties or something. But it was, like, really, really long. So one prominent <clears throat> critic at the time um, said... That it invents its own category of badness. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. So people either hated it or loved it. What's um, that critic's name? I want to go send him a, <laughs> a set of like a dozen roses or something. You're like, thank you. He's probably dead by now. But, oh, that's sad. Well, I don't know. This is like the 80s. He could still be alive. It was 90, you said. 95? 92 or yeah. 95. Yes. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So that was his first one where it was like <clears throat> not a smash hit in any way. But yeah. To this day, like, he looks back on that very fondly as, like, one of his favorites of his work. So, yeah, I think that one probably is more, like, Kafka-esque or, you know, just kind of bizarre. Um, so I can see the influences there just by the sound of the plot. Um, then he had uh, another novel come out in 2000, which was a detective novel. Mm. So he's kind of, like, trying a, a lot of different things. In 2005... <laughs> The novel that I first read by him, Never Let Me Go, comes out. And um, I, I, I looked back on this because I remember writing a review for it back when I had, like, my blog that I wrote book reviews on. I read it in 2015, and I couldn't for the life of me remember why I picked this book up because I don't think, like, I'm not normally attracted to literary fiction at all. Yeah. And I found uh, the story behind it. Basically, I moved to a new place, got a library card because that's the first – I'm a library person. 
Uh, yeah. I don't usually buy books because I'm cheap. My mother raised me cheap. <laughs> um, so I like free things. So <clears throat> when I moved to this new place, I got a library card. Um, and when I was there, they were like, okay, while this is being processed, you can check out one book. And I was like, one book. Oh my God, better make it count. So I was like browsing every single shelf. And I saw this one. I picked it up, read the inside cover. And for some reason I was like, yep, this is the one. That's it. This book fucked me up. Did it? It did. So, okay, the non-spoilery plot summary is that it centers on three students who go to a boarding school in England. And basically, like, it unfolds very slowly, but you get this, like, sinking feeling that something very terrible is going on, but you just don't know what it is. Yeah. Okay, that's the non-spoiler version. Do, are we gonna wait? Are we gonna wait and talk about all the spoiler stuff later, or are we gonna? I want to do this one it? now. <sighs> okay. Kay. Gotta, gotta go. So, I don't know anything about this one yet. Check the show. I notes know that for Kira the... Knight- Knightley was uh, was on it. Was in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Was in the movie, and also uh, Spider Man yep. and the Flash. Yes. Sure. Yep. 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 Okay. So this is your warning. Uh, go to the show notes to find when we come back from the spoilers and. So the thing that is wrong in this universe is that the students at the boarding school are all clones who will only live to like 30 max because once they're grown up, they are going to start having their organs slowly harvested in order to keep all the normal people alive past 100. Yeah. So like the island. Sure. I've never seen that. With with uh, Ian McGregor? No. Ian McGregor? Is that right? I don't know. <laughs> he has no they, idea. Uh, Obi Wan Kenobi. Obi Wan <laughs> Kenobi from from the oh, from the yeah. prequel series. Who's that? What's his name? I think Ian McGregor. Right. Maybe? Yeah. Yeah. The and uh, Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Okay. So they ripped off an, a novel. And he, when did he write this though? Uh, two thousand five. I. Oh, the island came out in two thousand five. Yeah, man. Damn. That was done by Michael Bay too. That was like his big debut. Google confirms we nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> Google can Man, that's her. weird though. Is that the same thing though? Like is that is it based off the same thing or is it like uh When did the movie come out? The movie came out in oh, I don't know, 2012 maybe. Dude, this is weird. This is freaking weird. The book came me out, out right in 2005. Yeah, which same means it year. was written way before that. Why? Cuz it takes a while for stuff to get published. Same with the movie though. It takes a movie years to be no, made. That's a good point. So, you think one of them was like oh, bugging shit. the other? Tyler just uncovered a conspiracy. Gage, look up uh, who wrote the screenplay to the island for me, please. You got it. Thank you. <laughs> I like how he yells so that he can be heard. Yeah. <clears throat> That's crazy, though. That is crazy. So, yeah. So, reading this, I think the part that freaked me out about the novel the most is, like, how calm they are the whole time. Yeah. And I'm just over here, once they, like, make the big reveal, I'm like, shh. And you're just, like chill with this you're I, just gonna I'm not go gonna through lie. with it it's a little bit um okay look i'm playing up how much i hate mcdougall's yes. husband uh so i don't i don't actually hate him uh mcdougall's husband is he's he seems like a nice guy but i get <clears throat> maybe because i've watched too much twilight zone and you know anthologies with big twists and shit and i've read a lot of stuff that has some good twists um I get disappointed in a lot of twists. And to be honest, I think that this one kind of disappoints me. 
because it seems super bland. Because maybe I've I've seen I've seen the island, I've seen that happen. Um, I've uh, there same with the movie uh, Us, the, yeah. the new one that came out with uh, Jordan Peele's movie. It came mm-hmm. out just a couple of years ago. It's the same thing. They're all clones. I mean, it's bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. Um, but it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe it's it's easy. You I feel like, like maybe that's an easy an easy thing. Yeah, clones. Also, I've been reading comic books for such a long time. Clones are everywhere in comic books. There's there's straight up a comic book, Spider-Man comic book called The Clone Conspiracy. What I like about it is that it doesn't <coughs> feel like a sci-fi book. And mm. I don't know if... I guess his other one that you read feels more sci-fi-y because it's like from the beginning you know that they're robots. It's a, yeah, it's a, well, from the yeah. beginning of this, you feel like they're just people. Yeah, and then there's the twist that, then, oh, it's been sci-fi the whole yeah, time. Yeah, it's like, oh, this is why it's weird. This is like, yeah. this makes sense of all the weird things that adults have told them at this boarding school. Um, and so, like, I, a lot of the critiques about the book have been, like, readers just being very upset like me. Like, why didn't they try to fight back? Why didn't yeah. they try to run away? Any of that. And so in this one interview, he was talking about it in a way that made a lot of sense to me. He was like, I was never interested in that story of the like brave slaves who tried to rebel and escape uh he said i like those stories i feel like they've been done a lot yeah i wanted to do something uh he said I, i'm fascinated by the extent <coughs> to which people don't run away yeah and i think that if you look around us that is the remarkable fact how much we accept what fate has given us mm. and i thought that really summed it up nicely i was like that makes a lot of sense that's why the narrator the whole time is just like so dispassionate and removed like yeah she doesn't even question her fate the whole time um and i want to bring this up for before i forget it there was one story that i really really liked and it was called i believe it was called the hours and it was written by a guy uh, named jesse i can't remember his last name now uh, he used to be the lead singer of a band called Falling Up, and it was like my favorite band when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, I almost had him on one of my podcasts actually back in, when I was still in the basement. And uh, I would have it didn't work out, and I'm very happy he didn't come to my super sketchy, scary basement. <laughs> but he he does he he used to be in a band. He plays music now for like movies and stuff, and he's a cool guy. But he tried his hand at writing as well, and he wrote a book but he only released it as an audiobook that he read as as the author he didn't ever actually release it as a book it's oh. super weird and it was the story about these kids at a school where they're like they're kept you know secret and then like they're allowed to go and do like experiments and stuff because these are like very smart children like like in like high intellect children and they figure out a way to like basically put themselves at almost at the point of death and then like they can like transcend and then like move through space and time and stuff kind of like flat flatliners flatliners but it was a little bit different than that it had the same elements but it was it was a different and that's not even like the main part of the story like that's a big part it shows their intellect and stuff but the big twist it was so cool to me it ended up being that the twist was like this was a society where um all of society basically destroyed itself. And these kids are living on top of a nuclear facility where there's still one last nuclear bomb and they're protecting it. And they're supposed to like 
learn how to use technology better than everybody and they and you end up learning like they're all speaking telepathically that none of them are actually like speaking speaking and they they're all autistic and because they're autistic they're more high functioning in their brains and they don't need to speak they can speak like through like all these weird things and it was like this cool twist of like i've never seen that happen where somebody takes this like oh they're like he was basically showing like how this disability that we think of nowadays could end up being this huge thing Savior in the future. Of humanity. Yeah. And I was just like, that's cool. That's a cool thing. And so I'm just, I don't know. I'm bored of clones, but like there are twists out there that still like, I still love. So I, don't know. I think this is the only clone thing I've ever read because I don't really like uh, sci-fi or comics that much. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe we just read too many to be, Impressed. Yeah. But I think it is unique for literary fiction. Yeah. This, like, that's what's surprising to me about him as an author is, like, his style is very, um, I guess, not pretentious, but it's, like, you know, kind of associated with those drier stories where it's, like, you know, about some serious topic. Yeah. But he uses that that storytelling and that tone for like sci-fi-esque topics or one of his books was a fantasy type story so um i think that's just what is kind of characteristic of him um so yeah so i think i'm done with spoilers for that Man, that's a lot of spoilers. All right. <clears throat> Y'all can come back now. It's, 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 it's a safe pretty, space. We covered a lot of shit, so <laughs> you might want to just deal with the spoilers. Yeah, I mean, this if you haven't read it in the 16 Holy years since it's shit. been out. Are you kidding me right now, Hannah? My brain is exploding. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's the spoiler? Oh, like the twist is amazing. I'm joking. I, Tyler's like I'm blowing actually, up I'm over like here. very much not impressed by Tyler's it. Tyler's letting all of his emotions out right now. You know why I'm not impressed by it? Because you didn't do it. Because it's not Lorna McDougal. Oh. <laughs> it's her husband. Oh, wrote it. okay. Shout out to Lorna McDougal. Uh, she has been his first editor for every single book, <laughs> much like all writers' wives. But uh, apparently she like will keep him from publishing things sometimes. Like she has the final say. Basically. Oh really? Yeah. In one of the interviews, he was talking about that. She, he was like, "Oh yeah," she said, "I I couldn't do this one yet, or whatever." And the interviewer was like, "Well, well, she's like a good editor. Then she's making sure you don't put crap out there." Yeah, man. Uh, so shout out to Lorna McDougal. So, um, <coughs> in 2015, he releases the Buried Giant, um, and that is a huge gap. That's like 10 years. Yeah. Um, during that time, the time in between, the only thing I really saw was that he published a volume of short stories. Um, so yeah, he he had a big break, and then the next one is the one that Tyler re- read, which was 2021's Clara and the Sun. Yeah, you told me to read a book by him, and then I immediately forgot which book I needed to read. So then I was like, it's probably his newest one. That's okay. Uh, I think you liked this one though, right? I enjoyed this book. So you probably liked it better than Never Let Me Go, or than I, you would have liked Never Let yeah, Me Go. Yeah, because there's not this huge twist. There's no, there's no twist almost so, at all. Shall I uh, clap for spoilers again? Yeah, let's do some spoilers again. Hey, spoiler-free people, (laughs) see you later. Go read the book and come back in a week. Okay, so yeah, at first I didn't like that there wasn't a twist in Claire and the Sun. So the premise for this one is we're living in a world where basically you can buy a robot to keep your kid company. AFs. 
AFs, artificial, artificial friends. friends. Yes. Uh, and it's told from the point of view of one of the AFs, Clara. Um, and her whole thing, she like basically worships the sun. Not uh, basically. 100% she, she, 100%, she worships the sun. Which that in itself was interesting to me because it shows that like even robots are drawn to religion basically. Oh, trust me. You think I'm not going to talk about yeah. this, Hannah? Okay. So go off. <laughs> no. We got more to talk about. So I guess a little bit more of the plot yeah. is she gets, basically she gets adopted by this little girl who comes into the, the store a couple times and really connects with her for yeah. whatever reason. Finally, um, I think her name is Josie. Yeah. She convinces her mom to buy Clara and bring her home. And not a newer model. And not a Clara, newer Yeah. Clara is like the second, uh, or like the second newest model, yeah. basically. There's one that's better than her. Um, but Josie wants Clara. So she goes to live with this family. Um, and again, it has kind of that same feeling throughout it that never let me go had where i was like there's something not right here yeah. there's hints at josie not being um not she's being sick. healthy she's not totally healthy there's something going on with with her and then her boyfriend or her best friend and yeah. neighbor um is like a lower class basically than yeah. them but we don't know why they keep referring to him as not being lifted right and i'm like i don't know josie's what a lifted child yes and her her friend is not and that means he can't go to the same school or have the <clears throat> same opportunities as yeah. her so this whole time i'm just like what the fuck is going on with these kids why yeah. are they so like I don't know, elitist. Yeah, like it, it. They they're teaching their lifted children. They have meetings every so often where their children are allowed to do whatever the fuck they want, and they have to like, they have to learn how to work with each other. And the parents aren't technically allowed to get involved, although some of them do. Um, Claire is shown off as a new toy essentially, and this is where we learn that Josie is, you know. <clears throat> She's conflicted. She loves Clara, but at the same time, she wants to be admired by her peers. So she's basically a teenage daughter. You know, yeah, and her normal. peers are kind of assholes. They're oh, like 100% making fun of Clara. Like assholes. She doesn't and stand then, up for but her. Then, uh, but then her boyfriend or best friend or whatever, um, he's... The fuck is his name? Like, was it Robbie? Or it was... Sorry. I don't know. Best friend. Josie, Jer- Josie's <laughs> boyfriend. Um, Josie's boyfriend. Lorna McDougal's husband's fictional character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> We're going to call him Rick. It's Rick. Rick. Yeah. I was going to say we should call him Rick. And then I was like, wait, that's actually his name. Good job, Tyler. Yep. Rick uh, Rick saves uh, uh, Clara from being, you know, like used as a toy. And we learn here that he's different. Um, as time goes on, there's different scenes where we see her connection to the human beings that are living in, in this house with it being Josie or her mother, uh, Carissa, Car- Cassie, something like that. Something with a C. And she, you know, and at first Cassie's kind of like cold to her, but then starts to open up. And then there's the the big event where um, Claire even says like, this is where I see everything starting is at this event where she goes to a waterfall with uh, the mom. And it was supposed to be a family trip, but Josie, uh, they don't think that she's healthy enough. So they tell her, nope, you got to stay home. We're just, just going to take the robot to the to the freaking waterfall instead of you. And right there, I was like, I already see what's happening. Right. Actually, I saw it beforehand when they were at the store and Josie walks weird. She has a, a weird uh, gaunt like a in, the way that she, in the way she walks. And the mom asks, hey, uh, 
can you, you seem to be observant. Can you observe the way that she walks? And she's like, yeah, of course I can. She's like, can you replicate it? She's like, yeah, of course I can. She's like, do it. And then she does it. And the mom is all like, oh, she does it too well. I don't like that. And then she, (laughs) and then they take her home. And, uh, and then this time at the waterfall, she's like, well, Josie's not here. And I wish she was. So can you just like, you've observed her. Uh, well enough that you can probably replicate her, right? And Josie, and then Clara's like, yeah, of course I can. She's like, fine, I want to talk to Josie. I don't want to talk to you anymore. So then Clara pretends to be Josie, and the mom gets all freaked out about how good she's doing at it. And then she's like, no, nah, this is dumb. And then they go home. And then, like, and then Clara starts to hatch a plan to fix uh Josie because she saw that the sun has healed other people so she's like well I see where the sun goes every night now I'm going to go track him down I'm going to force him into I'm going to make him do what I want and heal <laughs> Josie so then she gets Rick to help her go talk to the sun and that's it's actually very beautiful the way he writes those scenes of like talking to the sun uh and then she's like hey look if I do something for you will you heal Josie I know that's not fair but I I'll do something and you can help me out so then she has a plan now she's going to go destroy uh pollution yeah she just thinks in general the sun doesn't yeah. like this machine that this causes one pollution. machine this one machine that she causes saw pollution. outside the window yeah. in the store once uh and then so she's like all right if i get into the city and i go destroy this thing you heal josie that's the plan so then we catch a whole thing where they're going into the city and it's a, it's a huge ordeal um and lots and lots of stuff comes out of it including Josie's been getting her portrait painted, and I'm using air quotes here because <laughs> because it's not what's happening. They're getting Josie's measurements and things because they're building Josie a new body. But in order for it to work, they need Clara to observe Josie as much as possible so that they can transfer Josie's brain into or Clara's brain into Josie's mechanical body and replicate her and become the new Josie when Josie dies. And the the whole time I was like, okay, I know what's I knew this was happening. I knew it. That's the big twist. But that's like three quarters of the way into the book. There was still like four hours left into my audiobook on that. Mm-hmm. So I was like, there's gotta be more now. Like there has to be more. So then so then uh Clara gets away, goes and destroys the machine, and then waits for Claire for Josie to get all, you know, like nice and, and uh fixed up. But that never happens. And so she's like, fuck, there's more of them out there. I didn't even think about it. Pollu- you'll never stop pollution. Ah, and it's this whole like existential crisis. Yeah. Um, and so so then she goes back out to the barn one more time and she's all like, son, look, I know I'm not. It's not fair, but I tried to do it. I really did. And, you know, Rick loves her and she loves Rick. And, you know, like they're meant to be together and all this shit. And. And so then she feels like the sun is telling her, like, yeah, maybe. And then, like, a couple weeks later, it's all stormy from that point on. And so she's like, well, fuck this shit. It's The sun's <laughs> gone. And then out of nowhere, during the storm, the sun opens up. So she, like, runs upstairs, and they open up the window, and it shoots a beam of light onto Josie's face. And then it wakes her up, and she's like, hey, everybody, who wants pancakes? <laughs> and then she's all good. And then... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then she's healed and they don't ever have to replace Josie with Clara. And then there's a little bit more after that where you see them grow up. Uh, mm-hmm. Clara basically gets forgotten for a little bit because she's a robot and you can't have stories about robots without it being hugely sad because people just hate objects and forget about them. But eventually she, the uh, the guy that was doing the, the Josie robot 
was like, hey, Clara, since you've already fulfilled your duty here, do you want to come with me? And I'll like crack you open like a walnut and we'll figure out how the fuck you work. And this is where I was like, oh, this is going to be the real twist. This is what this is going to be it. It's going to be it. Because he's talking about like, we still don't know how you guys work. We still don't know how you, how like how to mi- how to make all this work. And I was I started thinking like, oh shit, where did these robots come from? How do we know about these robots? They never say where the robots come from. They just say that they're there, and the humans don't even understand how they work. So what if they're from fucking aliens and shit, right? <laughs> and I was like, fuck yeah, there's gonna be aliens that come down. Yes, this is great. But nope, nope. They never talk about it. And uh, and Josie's mom is all like, no, you're not going to take her. She's ours. We love her, even though they abandoned her in a room for like 20 years. But whatever. And she's all like, no, she deserves her slow fade. And then the next scene, there, she's in a junkyard. Well done, Josie's mom, you dumb bitch. You're leaving her out in a fucking junkyard. And then, and then she's just sitting there. She's just like, oh, yes, I remember that. Oh, yes, I remember that. And she's just going through her memories because that's the only thing that makes her happy now is her memories of, of the son and Josie and shit. And then the manager that originally sold her to Josie, who was always nice to her in the in the shop, because she like knew she was special. She knew she was special. Just start, just happens to be walking through the junkyard, and it's like, oh, Josie, oh, I love you. Oh, you're such a special little robot. I like how you're using a British accent, but I'm pretty sure this takes place in America. Whatever. <laughs> She's like, hey, Josie, you're such a special little robot. I'm just so happy that everything worked out for you. Peace. See you later. And she just walks off. And that's the end of the book. She just walks off. That's it. No aliens. <laughs> I was waiting to see what exactly you were mad about there. <laughs> also, it didn't have a fucking ending. She just like fades. Yeah. <laughs> I hate I hated the end. You hate- I loved this book. It was so good. I hated the end. I wanted so much more out of like a big I wanted to cry, but I didn't cry. I'm no, not I'm I didn't cry didn't there cry either. Um and I was expecting to and I also was expecting a big twist because I'd read Never Let You Go yeah. or Le- Never Let Me Go. I was like, oh, there's going to be some super fucked up twist at the end. Right. But then I was like, oh, this is like subverting expectations. Yeah. Do I like did this? You, Do I did not? Did you see the rep- replicant thing coming? Not as soon as you did. Really? Yeah. You're very good at this. I guess. I just, I've read a lot of, or I know a lot of sci-fi stuff. I didn't stuff, so. until um, the part with the sister. And then I was oh, like, talking oh, about I the... think I know where yeah. this is going. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, I really liked the book because... I just thought it was so interesting with Clara and seeing the way that other people treated her and like wondering as cliche as it sounds like what it means to be a human like yeah. is she a human because she thinks and like there's can so think many for human elements to who yeah. she is and I, how she thinks I feel toward her like I would toward any other human character I'm like sad when people are mean to her like when they toss her around I'm like she's not a fucking toy she's a person yeah but then I'm like she's not a person is she so much conflicting uh, I still think emotions. it's aliens. No joke. I'm not even joking. <laughs> For real. If he were to come out, if McDougal's husband came out and said, yes, they were supposed to be aliens the whole time. Or like aliens brought these robots to Earth. I'd be like, I knew it. It makes sense. And the manager was an alien the whole time. That's why she's in charge of the, of the robots. I would not have bought that ending. Really? <laughs> no. Nope. she was all like, well... Good job at your work. I'm going to go send word to home home world. Beep, boop, 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 beep. Teleport. God. Yeah. I you would have been like, no, I would have burned the book. Really? <laughs> I would have been like, what the fuck is this? It would have been so good, though. 
I don't Where like did aliens. the robots come from? People made them. But he had no idea how they work, and he was like one of the foremost leaders on the, the... I think he meant that specifically he doesn't know how Clara works, because Clara is not like the other robots. She's, she's an alien. Because she's an alien? I don't know. I don't know why Clara is not like the other robots. But uh, go off on the sun thing a little bit. Because okay. that was also the interesting thing to me that made her feel more human is that yeah. she's like, oh, the sun gives me solar energy. It charges me. I've seen it help other people. Yeah. It's God. I think it was very much uh, a play at the idea. Like we very much think of robots as a godless thing, right? Robots are logical, analytical, uh, and godless. But in this book, it's the reverse. The humans are absolutely godless, right? They have they have no hope. They have no... Um, faith in anything they go we are going to alter our children that's what lifting them is we're going to alter our children so that they are better so that they can do better we're going to leave nothing up to chance even though by lifting them they could die they could die yeah um and they they create a system in where all options are available even in death even when my child is about to die i'm going to make sure that i have options like put their put a consciousness within a body that looks like them and that's pretends so to be messed them. up to me but and that's that's them they're godless they want options they need solidity and they have no faith but clara is a cleric like in dungeons and dragons and has has a connection to a god and um and she brings hope she brings light she brings faith to these people she is literally a priestess of god coming into these people's lives and giving them hope and miraculous, miraculously healing them. I believe 100% that this is a story of faith and, you know, like, and touching the unknowity of God because we never truly see the sun just come down and pop down and be like, hey, Claire, what's up? It's me, God, <laughs> the sun. Because he would be British. But he, he writes a story in which the the um expectations are god humans are supposed to be god fearing and robots are supposed to be analytical and he he writes it 100% different and shows a world without god and the light and love and faith and hope that comes from god and i know i made this a tie tie the bible guy sermon but clara and the sun is uh a companion to the bible <laughs> <laughs> wow that was not how i thought that sentence was gonna end i know so i'm gonna, all over the place think, right now uh, i like that interpretation especially since he's not a religious guy so um that you know of no he said i'm not religious that you know okay, of. okay yeah okay <laughs> Okay, we're done with spoilers. Uh, you we're should done listen with to the whole review of the whole damn book. Of the whole book, Ty Ty the Bible Guy did come out at the end there. Yeah, so. if, you, if you're missing spoilers, you're missing <laughs> Ty Ty the Bible Guy. Sorry. So, yeah. So, basically, the last thing that I wanted to talk about was we just talked about two books in particular that feel very science fiction-y. Yeah. Um, and I think... This is where the not wanting to fall into a specific genre thing comes in because, like I said earlier, like his style is very literary. Yeah. Did Clara and the Sun read like a sci-fi novel to you? Yeah. Did it? Oh yeah. I feel like it wasn't like action-packed enough. It seemed like a very that, slow. To me, that's not what makes a sci-fi. It's it, I love the philosophical aspects of sci-fi. That's why I read sci-fi. I love robots. I love robots so much. If I was going to read a sci-fi, this is exactly the kind of sci-fi I would 
be drawn to is I was like I was like I don't know what book I'm going to read from this guy. This all these books seem lame. And then I read the back of Claire. I was like, "Oh, it's a robot? This is the book I'm going to read." Oh, okay. 100%. I stand corrected. I feel like maybe then I haven't read the right sci-fi for me because usually when I read sci-fi, it's very heavy on the technological aspects and not the character story, and yeah. I like character stories, yeah. which is what Claire and the Sun felt like to me. I, I don't think that you can say this isn't a sci-fi. I can see why some sci-fi people would be like, nah, not for me. Mm-hmm. But if you put this, I mean, reading like Caves of Steel, if you put this next to Caves of Steel, it makes perfect sense to me. There's almost no action in Caves of Steel. Okay. It's all robots and all philosophical, you know, talk. And that's what this was. Perfect. So, I mean, I guess that goes along with then. He's uh, Ishiguro has asked a lot about the genre thing because people like me struggle with that. We're like, how do we fit this into a neat box? Um, and he straight up, every time he's asked, he says he doesn't like the genre labels. He finds them limiting as an author. Mm. Um, and based, one of the things he said in an interview was like, I don't want any sort of imagination police looking over my shoulder when I'm writing. Um, he he doesn't like snobbery about genres. The idea that some genres are, are more literary or more important or worthy than others. Yeah. Um, he, like sci-fi, I get is often looked down on by sure. kind of, the high and mighty literary community. Yeah, I mean, when your entire genre is finds its identity from pulp, uh, yeah. you know, magazines and stuff, of course it's going to be looked down on. But I, I believe 100% that sci-fi is one of the most important uh, genres that you can read, especially in a time right now mm-hmm. where technology and shit is just going insane. And we need to find our identity in, you know, in... in this world that we live in and I'm sorry, Ty Ty is coming back uh, in God. And like, how does that play into the world that we live in now rather than a world where it was 2000 years ago and it was easy to, to say, you know, don't fuck your sister. Like those were the rules. Don't fuck your sister was the big one, right? Like now it's like, do our, are we allowed to have sex with robots, though? Like, is that a thing that we're okay with? The oh, yeah. Bible doesn't really mention that. So not that it not that it matters to me. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a concern in the future for sure. The yeah, first thing is. humans do with new technology is find Fuck a way it. to se- have sex with it. <laughs> is it cheating have if it's with a robot? Have you not seen Splice? It's so fucked up. I haven't seen Splice, but Don't I have seen Splice. the Black Mirror episode about having sex in a video game. Yeah. Uh, Ready Player One, or I guess Ready Player Two, talks more about it. The new, the new one. Uh, Splice is a fucked up movie where they do that. Hey, we created this thing. Cool. Fuck it. <laughs> what do you mean, like get rid of it? No. Fuck it. I want you to put your dick inside of it. Seems kind of weird, but I. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah, that I know. Gage, don't look at me like I'm the guy that wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched it over and over. And, no, I'm joking. <laughs> Wait, how did we get to the having sex part uh, of the conversation? Because we need to find our identity oh, in yes. technology <laughs> nowadays. And sci-fi is very important, liter- uh, a literary genre that we need to have. And it shouldn't be all, you know, laser guns and, and sword battles and, and things up in space. It needs to be real things that... That you could imagine that you existing. you can imagine ex- actually existing. And and a robot that is designed to help crippled children 
and its place in our lives is a very real thing that we can see in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you treat that? Is it a real per- person? Is it an? Is it sent by aliens? These are things we need to know <laughs> now, McDougal's husband. All right. Was that, that the end of the show? That spiel? was my sermon. <laughs> no, I think that was a good sermon. And I think that is why I personally like him as an author. I do plan to read some more of his stuff, even the non-sci-fi uh, books. Yeah, somehow I ended up reading the two sci-fi novels of his. I probably... I, yeah, I mean, you don't I don't really know if like I would read anything sci-fi. else. Yeah, I don't think... Well, I love, I love stuff that's non-sci-fi. You I can just, read the fantasy one. I think it's got some sort of King Arthur connection. I like... I like his style of having dread throughout the entire story. Literally, from the second you start reading this story, there's dread. And not dread of, like, werewolves are going to come and tear you apart, but dread of, like... Humans are going to be bad. What the fuck is going to go wrong here, and how bad is it going to be? And it just... It hangs over you for the entirety of the story. And it... I mean, I, I didn't like it. I didn't like that part, but at the end of it, I felt like it was worth it. You know, and that's why I texted you halfway through the fucking book. I'm like, <laughs> am I gonna cry? Because this is, I'm starting to get. He's taking me up this fucking roller coaster, and we haven't really dropped. And I'm, I'm getting scared. I need some drops along the way so I know I can handle it. But he just keeps taking me up. That's kind of the feeling that I hope I can emulate someday as a writer. Yeah. Like I don't know why I'm attracted to books that make me feel kind of shitty. Like make me feel scared that something's going to happen or that make me feel kind of bad about humanity. But I really want to replicate that feeling. Yeah. The the worst I've ever felt that is during the show. Uh, it's an anime show called Sword Art, Sword Art Online. And I, I know you don't. I don't, you don't anime. Want. You should watch it because you say you like that, that sort of feeling. You the should dread. watch it. Just the first season. Uh, I haven't watched any more of it because I don't want to put myself through that. And I've heard it kind of suck. But uh, the first season of that show, I was legitimately like in tears watching it. And and like Rebecca had to console me at one point because I'm like, I just want them to be happy. <laughs> That's all I want is for them to get out of this and be happy. Can't they just show me that that's going to happen? Oh, my gosh. Also... Possible cousin sex. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back. And we're back. Yeah, we need like a scorecard of how many times Tyler, <laughs> Tyler. has brought sex and incest into the conversation. <laughs> I think I'm at zero. Maybe one. <laughs> Maybe one. Tyler's like multiple times an episode. So <laughs> we've got to institute some sort of repercussions to, I can't for this. Be too vulnerable. I can't leave it up in the air being vulnerable. I have to bring About it up somehow. Yeah. At an anime and Rebecca having to console yeah. you. <laughs> I kind of like that, you know. Uh shattering stereo- stereotypes. Oh, I thought you were going to say cousin sex. No. <laughs> I kind of no, like that. No. Definitely don't like that. That's too bad. Incest is bad. Well, they say that. I mean, if you're like third cousins, it's technically legal. He's uh, my first cousin. That's weird. <laughs> so you yeah. have your cousins and your first cousins. Imagine them being your cousin. You're attracted to them, and you consider them your brother, though. Ew. Yeah, that's sort of online. <laughs> there's a there's a whole arc in there. I was maybe I'm gonna it watch. Sound so much worse than it I is. I was it's maybe not... gonna watch this before. You should. <laughs> it's so good. I'll, yeah, I'll watch it. I watched Game it's of Thrones. It's not like so. it's not a hentai. It's not like Ew. that's not the main thread. <laughs> it's just this weird thing that they do that even Beck and I are like, come on, guys, let's move past this. It's kind of weird. <laughs> it's a little weird. 
This is over the top. <laughs> All right, so, so we're finishing our episode. Yeah, right. <laughs> talking about <laughs> poor Lorna McDougall's husband. <laughs> oh, this is great! I love this show so much. Uh, we have an audience comment. Oh, we do. Gage, step up to the mic. Hey, uh, so Gage here. Um, so the island was actually based off a book called Island uh, by the English writer Aldous Huxley published in 1962. This oh, was Aldous Gage. Huxley is super Deuces. old. Wait, okay, what, ha- what actually happens in the island? Cause so in the it- island, it's this guy, in the movie at least, I don't know the book, it's guy, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he's all like, <laughs> he's all like, hey, this is great, I love living here, but there are things that are kind of weird, right? And then his friend, who he's not allowed to be friends with because she's a woman, is Scarlett Johansson, and she's all like, don't you want to go on an adventure? Ah, Ew. I'm a black widow. <laughs> and then and then he's all like, hey, look, I found a way out maybe, I think. I found a, a small thing. I found it It's a, to get out. And she's all like, but I won the lottery, and if I win the lottery, I get to go to the island. And he's all like, uh, turns out if you win the lottery – it means that they're going to take you into a room, cut you open, take your organs, and give it to the person that you're a clone of, and they paid for you to be grown so that they can get their organs because they're going to die. That's winning the lottery. And then you, and then you're dead. And then you're dead. So we're going to leave. And then they get out, and then they're, like, running around. And then he has to find the version of him that paid for him. And then he goes and kills that guy and takes <gasps> over his life. Wow. I think. It's been a while since I've seen it. But it was that was, g- like, very convincing for not having seen it for a while. It's a it's a good movie, actually. For for a Michael Bay movie, it's actually pretty good. Imagine Transformers, but with actual story. <laughs> and not Megan Fox. And not Megan Fox. Or her boobs. Oh. <laughs> Gage just lost Gage, it. Gage, unimpressed. So let, let me get this straight. I lose Gage with no Megan Fox, and I lose Hannah with Cousin Incest. Got it. <laughs> I think mine is way, like, more... <laughs> Acceptable. Tolerable. Yeah. <laughs> Only because he, he, he framed it that way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so yeah, that was that was our episode on uh, Laura McDougal's husband, Lorna, Lorna McDougal's <laughs> husband, Kazuo Ishiguro. Yep. Uh, it was a good episode. It was a good book. And uh, honestly, it, I recommend it. I really do. That's good. We both recommend it. Yeah. So get out there and read it, people. And uh, well, before you read some sci-fi, you know what you should do. You should write some sci-fi. Oh yeah! For our flash fiction episode. How many? How many days do they have? Like left? four, if you're listening to this the day it comes out Monday. Um, but even if you, even if look, I'm not telling you to write it and send it in late. I'm really not. Stick to the fifteenth, the fifteenth of April, because it'll help Hannah it be will. so much less stressed out, and then I can just you know not stress out, which is always nice. But if you're if you're like God, I cannot do it in four days. Just write a story and send it in, okay? I know. Look, duh, I'm not <laughs> saying do it late. I'm just saying still write a story. Because writing is awesome. It's like it's like how Romans works, right? Because in in Romans they're like, hey, look, the more you sin, the more Christ's death means something. Does that mean you should go out and sin a whole bunch? Is this a thing in the Bible? Yeah, yes, it is. Oh look, I'm I'm getting to it. The more you, some would say, the more you sin, the more that Christ's death means something. But does that mean you should sin more? No, because he died so that you wouldn't sin anymore. 
So I'm you, living by the first part of this no, lesson. No, see, that's the problem, is you can't take the first part. The whole point is the second part. I only, I nope, fell asleep in the can't. second part. The I fell I won't asleep allow it. in the second part. I've got more sinning to do, so no. we got to wrap this up. We all have more sinning to do. That's the whole point of life, unfortunately. Anyway, that's a whole other episode right late. Get your, write story your story in ASAP. Write your story as as soon as you can. Get it in. Does that mean you can't send it in after the 15th? No. You can still send it in. But don't send it in after the 15th. Does that make sense? <laughs> Thank you, uh, Bible writer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I, I will say I was very stressed out until this past weekend when a lot of the submissions started they coming in. They all come in. in like the week before, so, right? Thank yeah. you, guys. Keep them coming. Uh, and we've got hey, some awesome just narrators a heads up, coming. Still haven't written mine. Yep. Still have not written mine. That's fine. I'm going to get it to you on the 15th. On the 15th. Awesome. I'll probably get mine to me on the 15th as well. (laughs) At 11.59 on the 15th. Still counts. Yep. If it comes in on the 16th, the maximum grade you can get is a B. (gasps) I can get a B? Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Tyler, where can they find us? Uh, You guys can find us at um, so many places. Just hanging out. You know, gmail.com. That's where you're going to send your submission to our sci-fi flash fiction. Right? Yes. Right, bud? Right, bud? Hey. Gmail.com. Lewis and Lovecraft at gmail.com. Gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> if you have questions, you can always reach us at facebook.com slash Lewis and Lovecraft. We also have a, a, little, a little group that you can join. Uh, we share memes every once in a while and talk funny stuff. And people, Some people make memes. Yeah. Shout out to Devani again. Yeah. And, and Matt Johnson. Yes. One of our one of our longtime listeners. I love Matt so much. Uh, at Lewis and Lovecraft on Instagram. That's where we post. Used to be every day, uh, but ever since you know life is a thing, um, it's become like twice a week. Uh, we try, we try more, but you can always say funny stuff to us there. You can also go to our website, lewisandlovecraft.com. You can uh, share that website with anybody, and that's foreshadowing to something that we're going to talk about later. Awesome. Love some good foreshadowing. Riding that roller coaster up to the top. Yeah. Uh, As always, we want to give a special shout out to Jake Basson for making our awesome intro music. You can find him at soundcloud.com slash Jake Basson. That's spelled B as in boy, A-S-S-E-N. That dude's going to get some sick creds from us for the rest of our lives because our I love I love our sound. It's so good. Uh, make sure you subscribe to our show either on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way when we release episodes like this, our deep dives, or our correspondence episodes, you're up to date and you know what's happening. And uh, if you can, on whatever platform you listen to us, please rate and review us, especially on Apple Music or Apple Podcasts or whatever the big one is. The iTunes isn't a thing anymore. Apple Podcasts. Apple yeah, Podcasts. Apple okay. Podcasts. Leave us a review. Please leave us a review. If you leave us a review on Apple Podcast and or Podchaser, I will possibly maybe go out of my way to reach out to you and maybe send you a sticker. Oh, yeah, you get a sticker if you submit a sci-fi story, too. Oh, you can get two stickers, you guys. Well, maybe just... uh, If you want two stickers, you can get two stickers. But, Hannah, what was I foreshadowing into? What can they do with the link of our website? You can send it to a friend. (gasps) You can send it to people? Yes. You can email it to them. You can DM them. You can slide into a stranger's DM. slide into that DM. (laughs) Whore. Yeah. Slide into your cousin's DMs. I was going to make that joke.
Oh my god! Hannah, you've been uh, hanging out with me for oh too long, man. Oh my god. Man. Well, you know, I've got all that sinning to do, so yeah, I've made a do. very terrible joke. Let your friends know <laughs> that they're capable of sinning, but they shouldn't because Jesus died for them. Also, listen to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. LewisandLovecraft.com. <laughs> Tell your friends about us. It's the only way that we're going to grow. And we need to grow. We've been doing this for a while now. We need another, like, big growth spurt. We're, I don't. I'm 5'10", but... You're good at five foot ten. I'm, I'm good. Don't need to be any taller. <laughs> I I stopped right at six, and I was like, I'm good. Legit, I was so happy when I hit six foot. Didn't do another foot or another inch. <laughs> another, another foot. foot. <laughs> well, okay. Let Tyler hit seven feet tall by yeah. sending our uh, show to all of your friends, all of your family. Yes. And uh, I don't really have a teaser for the next episode, but it's on keeping with the uh, robot theme. So yeah, that's nice. Uh, and you. If you, uh, robots in disguise. Nope, that's Transformers. Fuck. Uh, uh, three laws of robotics. That's all I got. That's all I got. Will Smith is joining us next episode. Good night, New York. We're signing off. (laughs) Ha <laughs>